Hello and welcome to the TNW podcast, the show in which we discuss the latest developments in the European technology ecosystem and feature occasional interviews with some of the most interesting people in the industry. My name is Andrei Degler. I am the head of media at TNW. And I'm Joanna Likardopoulou, reporter at TNW. Hey, Joanna, it is your first time joining the podcast. Welcome. Thank you. I'm really excited. <laughs> How are you doing? How's it been? Uh, I'm good. The only thing that's quite challenging for me now is the pain I'm facing after CrossFit <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> okay, I mean, you don't let it out. So like, uh, I'm l- looking at you. I can't see that you are in pain, but, uh, <laughs> but, but it's very admirable that you still have yeah, found the I'm, strength uh, to come over. <laughs> I'm suffering in pain, I have to say. I don't know how you feel, but... Uh, Oh, yeah. I'm, go- I'm going to I'm going to have the same tomorrow. So you will see me tomorrow. Yeah, tomorrow <laughs> is a pain day for me. So you will see me tomorrow, and you can you can ask me about how I am doing. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's good to share this type of uh, achievements, I guess. Yeah. It's therapy. <laughs> it's therapy. <laughs> So today's episode, we are going to discuss multilingual large language models, uh, the latest news from Mistral AI, some boardroom drama and learning theories, and a few things in between. You will also hear an interview with Zeynep Yavuz, partner and global venture firm General Catalyst. So we start, as usual, with a story that we did cover this week. And uh, Ioana, since you are uh, my co-host this week, so what did you cover? What was something interesting that jumped out uh, at you uh, this week? Yes, so the the first uh, super interesting story for me has been uh, the one about Silo AI, Mm -hmm. which is based in Helsinki and it's Europe's largest private AI lab. Uh, It completed the training of its Poro model. Mm -hmm. And this is a major step in the startup's mission to create LLMs for low-resource languages and to build a family of open-source multilingual LLMs for Europe overall. Okay, that's a mouthful. Uh, let's try to let's try, let's <laughs> try to unpack it one by one. Okay, so what's a low resource language? Uh, okay, essentially, low resource languages are those that have limited training data for AI, like Finnish. In contrast, English is a great example of a high resource language. If if we think about it, AI systems use massive amounts of online data to train, mm-hmm. and what's the lingua franca of the internet? English. This means that in generic LLMs, high-resource languages like English dominate, which in turn means that they don't perform equally well in low-resource languages, missing both linguistic and cultural nuances. It's actually the same with human-speaking languages. The better you speak one, the better you can communicate and understand fellow speakers, and the better the result of your work is. Now, Poro is proficient in code, English, and Finnish, the low-resource language in this case. Silo AI says that it outperforms existing models in Finnish, including Mistral AI and FinGPT. Oh, wow, okay. And uh, so is there something that they did differently to uh, to create this model that it has become better than these, uh, these others? Yes, there is. The startup used a novel approach by pairing high-resource English and low-resource Finnish. This method relies on cross-lingual signals to boost the understanding of the connections between the languages and, in turn, boost performance in Finnish while not compromising it in English. And, you know, interestingly, Poro has achieved another milestone. It's the first multilingual model that has been trained on a EuroHPC supercomputer, specifically Lumi, proving that this is actually an effective way for LLM training. I spoke with Peter Sarlin about it, Silo AI's co-founder and CEO, 
to better understand the impact of Poro and the vision for open source multilingual LLMs for all European languages. He explained that, first of all, it's about aligning with the EU values on linguistic and cultural diversity. And, you know, beyond its symbolism, this also means democratizing access to every member state. Mm -hmm. It's also about the commercial benefits. Charlie noted that such multilingual models build a baseline infrastructure that allows European companies to innovate on top. This way, companies can ensure that value stays in Europe with them, And in other words, they boost Europe's AI independence and overall competitiveness. That sounds like a part of uh, von der Leyen's uh, speech uh, somewhere, uh, somewhere in the European Commission. Uh, <laughs> by the way, before we move on to the uh, uh, rest of uh, European uh, LLM ecosystem, Poro is a meaning uh, is, is a word that means something in Finnish, right? It, it means does. Reindeer. It means reindeer. I find it very cute, actually. Okay, so we are <laughs> moving from a reindeer to a cat. Yes, that was uh, that was a very smooth way to phrase it, because speaking of this whole uh, Euro European independence in AI, Paris-based Mistral released on Monday a new flagship AI model for developers. And uh, I don't know about you, but I can't really believe that this is already the fifth model of a 10-month-old startup. <laughs> And again, it only launched its first LLM, Mistral 7B, uh, in September. So much like its predecessors, Mistral Large is an open source generative AI model, which the startup says has top tier reasoning capabilities. It's proficient in code and math, and it's fluent in five languages, mm -hmm. which are English, French, German, Spanish, and Italian. And just as a comment here, since we have been speaking about it, I find that open source and multilingual models seem to be indeed a competitive edge for Europe. Yeah, it seems to be the case indeed. Are there any Greek language uh, models, like specific uh, Greek language models? Definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> We are a low resource language, as, as, as explained before, but I hope there is going to be. Did you try to like prompt uh, any of the existing models in Greek? Uh, how do they? How yeah, do they it's it's just it's sometimes it works with ChatGPT, for example, but sometimes it's just funny or stupid. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so and and the other interesting thing about Mistral actually is that it has teamed up with Microsoft, and the new model is now available on Azure. This makes the startup the second company to launch a commercial language model on Microsoft's platform right after, as everybody can guess, uh, ChatGPT from OpenAI. Microsoft has poured billions of dollars into OpenAI, which I think is about 13 billion or mm -hmm, something mm -hmm, like that. So, yeah. But it does seem that it wants to ensure a diversified portfolio in any case. Meanwhile, To connect it with the cat that you mentioned, Mistral also launched a multilingual assistant. It's called Le Chat, which is the cat in French, and it will enable conversational interfacing with the company's AI models. It's now on uh, beta access for early customers, but it will soon be available for enterprise users. Enterprise, but uh, but not like uh, not me and you, not uh, not 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 just uh, general public. No, no, no. The main focus is enterprise. Ah, that's too bad. I mean, it would be interesting though. 
Okay, so if you if you happen to be one of those uh, early early adopters or enterprise users, uh, we would love to uh, take your account for a spin. <laughs> Let us know. Okay, uh, thank you so much, Ivana, for this one. And I wanted to also talk about a story this time, a story that we didn't cover, but I think it it is worth uh, some attention. And because as a rule, you know, GenW looks at technology first. We are a technology publication, and uh, normally corporate spats of different sorts uh, fall outside of our purview. But one boardroom drama from last week looked interesting enough to me, so uh, I decided to take a look uh, deeper. And this one involves one of the world's largest VC investors and one of Europe's more successful fintech startups. So, enter Sequoia Capital and Klarna. First, some quick context for this. So Sequoia owns a 22% stake in Klarna. It was an early backer and Sequoia's former leader, uh, Michael Moritz, has long been the chairman of uh, Klarna's board. He left Sequoia last year in July and technically gave up his board seat that was related to Sequoia, but in practice he just became an independent board member. But the board seat that uh, he vacated went to another partner at Sequoia, Matt Miller. And it appears like the two men, uh, Miller and Moritz, uh, haven't exactly been getting along, at least in what concerns Klarna's uh, future IPO arrangements. And to make it clear, there is no official confirmation of the IPO timeline, but some media have reported that it is slotted for the year 2025, that's next year. So, and the tension between the board members came to a head last week as Miller asked Klarna's shareholders to remove Moritz from the board, which is a very big ask, in fact. And it appears that this request was also backed by Sequoia in general and its uh, current chief, Rulof Bota. Uh, however, the idea of replacing Moritz reportedly made a strong pushback from Sebastian Semetkovsky, who is the founder and CEO of Klarna. And after a couple of days of a standoff, and I wish I were a uh, fly on the wall in, this, uh, in those meetings, uh, the decision was made uh, within Sequoia to withdraw the request, and Miller, the challenger, left the board of Klarna altogether. He was replaced by another Sequoia partner, Andrew Reid, who is reported to be uh, much closer to, uh, to Michael Moritz. This is a lot of drama, uh, actually. <laughs> this is this is this is something that doesn't happen every day or no. even every year. I think, especially at this uh, this level of companies and VCs. Uh, what do you think it's is the meaning of it all? So what it means for the ecosystem, first of all, uh, because like on the on the outside is just like a palace intrigue, as a journalist at Pitchbook put it, uh, but it does, I think, have some meaning for the mm -hmm. European tech ecosystem and community. And uh, again, as many journalists before me uh, who covered it and noted already, the situation does reflect the general tension uh, in the industry, because as the market conditions continue to be quite adverse, there is a lot of pressure that starts from the LP level, limited partners uh, mm -hmm. who demand faster returns from venture firms. And those, in turn, might sometimes push founders uh, to adjust uh, their vision of how the company should develop, uh, meaning an early exit or maybe more direct path to profitability or anything else. And even Sequoia is not immune to shakeups like this. So this could be a sign of the times, if you will, and we may see more of this kind of thing in the future. But then again, a lot depends on the market conditions and whether the tech IPO landscape improves anytime soon. So uh, we are a tech publication, as I said, but it's still, uh, it still makes a lot of sense to uh, take a look once in a while at what is going on on the business level of things to, to understand whether there will be more backing for important technologies that we're looking at uh, day in and day out. Absolutely. Understanding uh, the conditions in the market is critical for 
for yes. both us and the rest. <laughs> exactly. So uh, let's stay. Let's get back to the language part of things. So for uh, this week's uh, uh, learning, uh, what did you decide to choose, Joanna? Uh, well, being a, a huge language nerd, and uh, I'm sorry to... You're to, a trained language nerd, <laughs> I'm a trained <laughs> language nerd, in fact. So this, this entire focus on LLMs uh, made me want to look into how we as humans learn languages. How do we acquire and develop a language? Uh, so I looked it up and I found that there are four different theories in linguistics, which is a hardcore language studies, by the way. Uh, the first one is called the behavioral theory. It suggests that we don't have an internal mechanism for developing language ourselves. We have nothing. And children only learn to speak by imitating their parents or any caregivers, thanks to positive or negative reinforcement. Think, for example, of a child saying the word mom or dad correctly for the first time. You, I'm sure you have this experience, Andre. So there's going to be enthusiasm, hugs, kisses, and so on, which shows to the child that this is the way to go. Yeah, no, absolutely. I can, <laughs> I can, I, I can definitely <laughs> remember those moments. But at the same time, so basically, so this one means that if there are two children of the same age, if they sort of grow up in an isolated environment, they will never learn to speak to each other, like with a language, with anything that reminds, uh, resembles a language. Probably not, yes. Wow. Okay, so that's theory number one. That's theory number one. Theory num number two is called the nativist theory. It's very famous and uh, very controversial as well. It's been developed by a linguist called Noam Chomsky. It says that learning a language is an innate biological drive for humans. And there's a special mechanism in our brain, which he even calls a device, <laughs> language acquisition device, or LAD to be exact. And this device works as an encoder, which helps children have a baseline understanding of grammatical structures, so they're able to incorporate words independently. Okay, so this is like an uh, like an like an entirely opposite view uh, yes. of things. And fun fact: he believed that there's uh, there exists a universal grammar in every single language. Uh, <laughs> So that this is why it's possible for anyone anywhere in the, in the world, regardless of where they're born, to learn any language because they have th some structures that are there, set, preset in their mind. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So between these two, what are the other two then? <laughs> <laughs> the other two, okay. The, the third one is less complex, I think. It's more practical. It's called the cognitive theory. Here we have a connection between language acquisition uh, and our cognitive development. So this theory suggests that children need to have developed important cognitive skills first before they're able to fully use language. So this is an example. We have a young child that has no deep sense of time. So how could this child fully understand how to use past tenses or future tenses? So in this theory, cognitive skills and language development go hand in hand based on age, mm -hmm. meaning that children gradually move from a few spoken words to coherent sentences about themselves to deeper political, moral, philosophical thoughts, you know, so on. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very big leap, uh, so yeah. somewhere in the middle there. Okay, fine. And number four? Number four and the simplest one, but very deep in its sense as well is the interaction theory, which, as its name suggests, means that 
language is based on interaction. Mm -hmm. So it considers language as an ability we're born with. It's something that's innate again, but we need constant interaction with our caregivers to fully learn and understand the language. So this is not simply about um, social interaction, but also ways of playful and dialogic learning. Okay. Oh well, that's definitely something that I have learned uh, now as well. The, <laughs> the four theories. So okay, so 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 there are four theories, but uh, do we actually know which one is correct or like more correct than the others? Well, what do we uh, what do we know about uh, how we actually acquire languages as children? Um, the consensus now is a combination of these theories. Mm -hmm. uh, if we try to put it in a few words, what what we now know as an accepted fact is that language is indeed an innate mechanism. Okay. We just have it. But then to acquire it, there's a lot of focus now on interaction as well, like the fourth theory. And of course, on imitation, like in the first theory, because it's it's also a given fact in educational research that we learn by doing. Wow. Okay. Well, th th that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I don't remember, of course, uh, myself acquiring the language when I was <laughs> when I was a child, but but it sounds it, it sounds it sounds quite logical. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember either, but I I think it's it's a very clear way. Great, great. Thanks so much for uh, for bringing this up today. Thanks a lot. Now let's move to today's featured interview, and this one is uh, with uh, Zeynep Yavuz, a partner at General Catalyst. So I sat down with Zeynep uh, earlier this month uh, when I was in London, and we talked about her view on European fintech, the most important trends that drive the VC industry in Europe, and of course much more. So here is the interview for you in full. Please do enjoy. Zainab, thank you so much for joining this show. Uh, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So uh, if we can start the conversation with just like you talking about uh, yourself a little bit. So what's your journey uh, been so far? So what brought you to General Catalyst? Of course, happy to. So I started my investing career in London with mm -hmm. a firm called TA Associates. And TA is a legendary investing firm. They do growth investing, growth and I'd say more late stage private equity. They've been around for, I think, about 60 years. So right, it's a yeah. very, very well-known fund. And what was unique about TA is that we were doing late-stage investments, but we invested in founder-owned businesses. So I very early on in my investing career started with working with founders. And at the time, I was looking at more bootstrap businesses. Of course. Um, and actually, if I, more of a personal anecdote, my, my parents have um, a technology business that they started when I was a kid um, in Turkey. So I kind of get the mentality of a founder who bootstrapped their business and scaled it. So I kind of had that growing up. And then when I joined TA, I really absolutely loved working with these founders. My path to GC was not a very, you know, organized one. Uh, what I saw <laughs> when I was at TA was that there are multiple stages to investing. You know, right. there's the identifying the investment and you do the investment and you're helping that investment grow and then there's the exiting part. I'd done a lot of kind of identifying investments and investing in companies at TA. I did work with a lot of portfolio, but mm -hmm. I was never very much in the details. I never had PL responsibility. I never had product responsibility and I'd never really managed teams. And I think that's something that you don't, you'll never do in an investment firm at scale because investment firms typically are quite small. Yeah. So that was kind of my path into operating. Mm -hmm. And that's when I joined World Remit, which is a cross-border payments company. That's a global cross-border payments company, mainly targeting immigrants who live in, you know, who live in Europe and the mm -hmm. US and send money back home. So it's a digital remittance provider challenging the likes of Western right. Union. Yeah. 
And there, what did you do there? So I was responsible for our new consumer product strategy, mm-hmm. mainly in Africa, so for our recipients, so the people who were receiving funds. And we were thinking of providing, you know, what are the things they lack? Should we give them a bank account? Mm-hmm. Should we do integrations to different mobile money wallets? What is our view on crypto, which was picking up a lot in Nigeria? Right. Oh, yeah, yeah. What about consumer credit? What about insurance? So it was super exciting to kind of suddenly find myself in the continent. I was actually <laughs> in, in South Africa mm-hmm. uh, during this period and really opened my eyes to first the fintech market in Africa. Mm-hmm. The dominance of mobile money and PESA in Kenya and the leapfrog effect there was mm-hmm. just fascinating. But I also saw how to build products from zero to one. Right. The second thing I saw at Worldremit was really working at a very fast growing company. And that's where I realized is scaling a business is also very tactical. So the, the two takeaways that I kind of had from Worldremit, one was you know building a product from zero to one is a tactical business, but also scaling organizations, kind of when you're past the 500 employee and you're growing still like doubling in size, that's also very tactical. Um, so those were the two things at the high level and more at the micro that I took away mm-hmm. from Worldremit. And it was more the product building side that led me to venture. Uh, that's when I started doing more what I call kind of lightning moment investments, mm-hmm. where I would see a product and I would kind of meet a founder, see a product, it would fit right into what I was building and solving my needs. And typically that company would be raising like a seed round and mm-hmm. then I would participate. So it really started more as an angel okay. investor, very different style of investing compared to, <laughs> you know, private equity that is I guess a lot more about the company and the financials and definitely not a lightning moment. It takes months, <laughs> like to, sometimes years to figure it out. Then though, it's quite tactical to grow these businesses on the private equity side. So that's how I ended up at General Catalyst. You know, my path, that was my path to venture. What I really wanted to do was to be with a venture fund that invested in enduring businesses. Mm-hmm. I thought that was something that lacked in Europe. Uh, we had a lot of capital more going into seed in early stages and a lot of funds that are focused on that, but there weren't that many funds that actually invested from the, the idea stage, so the pre-seed stage, mm-hmm. and stayed with those companies to IPO and sometimes even post-IPO, because that's a very different way of investing. And is that the kind of mandate that uh, you now have uh, at GC? Everyone at GC has this mandate. We need to think about the long term. We're not really focused on if I invest that seed or this business would definitely raise a B so that I can, I know that the business will be able to raise a B around, so Mm -hmm. I'll make money. But it's (laughs) not about that for us. It's about building these category defining businesses because when we invest in a company, we're with them throughout the whole journey. Right. And do you still focus on uh, FinTech and payments? FinTech and payments is a big area of focus for me still. That's where I build products. So, and that's where I actually invested mostly within private equity, a lot of tools that were sold to banks. Okay. So I've seen kind of more what I call the dinosaur solutions, like the, you know, the ERPs, the NetSeed or the SAP and the antiquated solutions, same in like in in procurement Mm -hmm. that are incredibly robust products. But obviously when you get to that scale, your level of innovation is not the same. But I did spend time with those businesses and I saw how complicated it was what they built. So when I look at the earlier stage companies now, I can have both lenses of like, okay, I understand your ambition and there's a lot to change, but it's going to take a long time. Yeah. So I focus on fintech, but I also 
more general in a more generalist manner focus on what we call ignition which is our series a to c investing mm-hmm. interesting so that that must be that must be a pretty big change first going from this very very sharp specialty and uh, being focused on uh, uh, fintech to to a wider uh, range but also uh, after having some experience in investing this like lightning moments as you call it and and now it's suddenly a to c so so what's uh, like uh, how did you approach the change yeah so Luckily, I've done different styles of investing mm-hmm. already, so that helps because I've I've invested as a journalist, a journalist technology investor before when I was at TA. Okay. Yeah, yeah, right. Then sure. I had the specialty, and I go back to it, and I think that actually makes sense in two ways. So, one, it works because we're at Journal Catalyst. Mm-hmm. At GC, we really pride thematic expertise. I think this is very important, particularly in Europe. I believe the founders in Europe were, in a way, underserved by the investing community. Mm. Because the founders, when they speak to investors, they want to speak to domain experts. True. But if you look at it traditionally in the investing group within Europe, you will not have that many people who've been operators before or who've built products before. That's actually a nature of the ecosystem because we didn't have that many tech companies 20 years ago, which is kind of the difference between the U.S. In Europe, therefore, you'll have a lot of investors who come from, you know, investing career which again, you got to have a diverse group of investors, but I think we were skewed a little bit too much towards the investing side. That's why even though very short time I was an operator, I wanted to go do that because I thought it would make me a better investor and have empathy with the founder. And that thematic expertise is very helpful to the founder because then when they speak to an investor, they don't have to do the zero to one. You know, they can really go into the depth. They don't have to waste their time kind of explaining very simple concepts. Uh, so at GCV, pride thematic expertise, and we are extremely collaborative. That allows me to really have that one theme, which is mm-hmm. for me, you know, a lot of payments in fintech, and I can go really deep into it. When I know my colleague, my colleague uh, Juliet Balin here, she focuses a lot on data and enterprise. Mm-hmm. So she spends all her time on different, uh, looking at different data models. Um, so when we are looking at a data company. Juliet will always give me the thematic view and then we can collaborate on it together. So that's why I think it works to have, because you can't be an expert on everything. No. But if you're collaborative, then you deliver the best product to the founders, which is what we are interested in doing. And when it comes to series A to C, it's slightly different. There we really focus on product market fit. Mm -hmm. We try to focus on investing in companies from A to C when there are exceptions, but when there is a sign that there's product market fit. And from the minute that we invest, we can kind of, you know, supercharge the GTM and the business compounds Mm -hmm. so that the discovery phase, at least on one of the products, is kind of more mature. Mm -hmm. That's when we try to do what we call, you know, the A investments. To be honest, in enterprise, it takes a long time sometimes to do a product. So there will be exceptions where you'll invest more capital at seed or seed extensions. But at its core, we try to focus on post-product market fit. Right. And you mentioned uh, about this uh, lack of uh, operator-run uh, uh, VCs in Europe. I think it's been changing, though, hasn't it? I, th- I hear more and more about uh, new new funds being launched by people who actually have a lot of experience as operators. 100%. And this is actually driven by how the ecosystem is changing. Mm-hmm. If, and that's how you know the founder backgrounds are also changing. It used to be that a lot of the founders used to come from the consulting and the banking category because a lot of smart Hmm. graduates would go into those roles because the tech roles just didn't exist. 
And when you go into a tech role as well, it takes time to, you know, get senior and to learn learn your skills. It's not usually not a two year stint. Mm-hmm. And if you're part, if you're lucky to be in a very fast growing company like a Monzo, for example, then you will be learning a lot in just one year. Mm. And that opportunity didn't exist really, you know, mm. ten years ago. So now we're seeing in Europe what US has seen already a long time ago, which is the recycling of capital and talent. It's really more the talent side. I think that's important. Mm. People are leaving these tech companies as experienced operators. And that talent is either going into investing, but better for us, it's mostly going into new businesses being started. So that's why I think it's a very exciting time now, specifically Mm -hmm. in Europe. Right. And your focus in general is just pan-European, so you don't really have any particular uh, regions that you will be focused on. I focus pan-European. Within the fintech domain, of course, I also look at businesses, you know, I have a number of investments in Africa. Mm -hmm. We are very working very collaboratively with the US team. Because I'll give you an example. In in fintech, we have the concept of open banking, Mm -hmm. which happened in Europe. It was introduced, I think, in 2018, maybe Mm -hmm. slightly before that. And then there were a number of companies that emerged in account-to-account payments in Europe. Now, in the US, they're introducing Fed now. So they're quite behind. (laughs) But Finally. Yeah, they're they're introducing (laughs) Fed now. And, And the good thing is that when we have our global fintech meeting, and my, my U.S. colleagues are looking into Fed now or companies that are doing account-to-account, mm-hmm. I'm in the meeting and I can tell them, okay, account-to-account works, but what about refunds? What about chargeback? What about all the value-added <laughs> services that we realize in Europe were important? Yeah. So they don't have to kind of fall to the traps. They can, we can learn from each other on what worked, what were the limitations, what should the good account-to-account payment companies in, mm-hmm. in the U.S. now think about uh, building. So I think that information sharing is actually quite uh, helpful. Right. And if you and if we look uh, beyond uh, the fintech uh, uh, landscape and like in general at uh, European tech ecosystem, where do you where do you generally see the strongest and the weakest points, if you will? The weakest points we're going to be seeing more in the growth markets. Mm-hmm. It's a combination of two things. I want to finish on a positive note, so I'm starting with the weakest. <laughs> so the weakest point for me is actually liquidity. Mm-hmm. And that hits, I think, fintech a lot harder than other sectors. If you look at the you know, unicorn landscape in, in Europe, about 30% is in fintech. And more than majority of that is local companies. Mm-hmm. So they're either only present in one geo or they have 80% of their revenue in France, let's say, and they have some presence in the rest of Europe. Uh, but they're a French company. And if you look at a lot of the neobanks, they, you know, they are really present in their own geo. Like Bank mm-hmm. is present, you know, you live in the Netherlands. Yeah, yeah. That's the Dutch company. And then the question becomes, where do these businesses go public? Mm-hmm. And of course, the historically, a lot of the European technology companies chose to go public in the US because that was a bigger stock market, provided mm-hmm. be- better liquidity. And that does work in enterprise because a lot of enterprise European companies eventually expand into the US quite early on. Mm -hmm. It's not the same for fintech. So I think there's going to be a question of where do these companies go public in the next five years? And that's applying to a lot of countries. That applies to Germany, that applies to France. Mm -hmm. I mean, in the UK, we've had a few IPOs, which is great, but still there's a lot of catch up to do compared to the US. So I think that is the weakest part of the venture ecosystem Mm -hmm. today in Europe. 
but what do you do with it? Like, um, I mean, we have a stock exchange in Amsterdam. Was was the problem for a bank, for example, to to go public there? They can go public there, but and and they probably, I mean, they can definitely <laughs> go public there. Um, and there are a number of, I mean, Adyen is trading there. Um, so there are a number of companies that trade there, but still the holy grail is the US. Mm-hmm. That's where a lot of companies try to go public. It's not really going to be possible for a lot of different techs that are primarily in Europe and mm-hmm. more importantly, primarily in one country. Makes sense. Okay, strongest point. The strongest point is the this recycling of talent. Mm-hmm. I think that's and recycling of capital and talent. I mean, capital is definitely very abundant right now in Europe, driven by a lot of um, kind of uh, local seed funds and local European funds raising bigger funds, US funds coming over. And more importantly, founders becoming angels, successful founders and operators now becoming angels. Mm -hmm. That's really creating a more flourishing ecosystem for founders to take risk. Absolutely. It was always seen that the US founders took more risk than the European ones. Now I think we're seeing in Europe, like it's of course calculated risk, but they are thinking bigger thanks to that capital availability. Recycling of talents is more important. A lot of companies today, and I'll talk about more fintech specifically, a lot of the big wins we've had in Europe in fintech more recently, meaning in the last 10 years, have been more on the consumer category. Mm-hmm. Look at a Monzo, Revolut, Klarna, TransferWise, Worldrumet, Zeps. Mm-hmm. These are all consumer fintech companies. A lot of people, though, who a lot of engineers and technical people who worked in these companies, however, didn't experience the consumer side. They saw the enterprise side. Mm -hmm. They saw how suddenly they experienced growth, how the enterprise systems that their products are built on just start falling apart. (laughs) And how you need to throw people at the problem. You can't auto if you don't have automated solutions. Mm -hmm. So now what we're seeing is that people who've kind of seen this and experienced this had to build everything in-house are leaving to productize these solutions. Mm -hmm. And this will be an interesting cycle because I think fintech always operates in these cycles where we were having this consumer cycle, the distribution cycle. And now we're going into the enterprise category. That enterprise category will give rise to new treasury solutions, new reconciliation tools, new customer onboarding, KYB compliance, all the things that broke when the consumer (laughs) fintech grew very fast is now going to be a lot more stable. And when those productized solutions are out there, the next generation of consumer fintech companies will be built on top of them in a more scalable way. So do you expect to see a lot of this like disruptive type of uh, technologies and products that would come to bigger payment institutions? Yes, it will be, as I say, the dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> we have the, chi- the challenges of dinosaurs now in, in the... And I don't want to call them dinosaurs. They're like it, not in a negative connotation. These are amazing. These are iconic companies. But we needed new companies to challenge them. So that's now happening. I think in the next you know, five years, we're going to see probably a new global treasury tool coming mm-hmm. out of Europe, a new global ERP maybe, a new accounts payable solution. We're, we don't have any tools here for accounts payable really in Europe compared to the US, right? Uh, which has a lot more enterprise tool. Procurement is another interesting category. That's probably going to be the next generation of tools in fintech. Are we going to be able to finally let uh, COBOL rest in peace? Uh, (laughs) The the, the programming language COBOL that is like 70 years old and still used by most of the banks. (laughs) Yeah, when it comes to banks, that's like another can of worms. (laughs) If I may 
because of course we're really still focused on, and I think this is actually an important point. We're still quite focused on disruptors and challengers, mm -hmm. right? The concept of the Neo Bank was that if I try to transform the existing bank, it's going to be more expensive for me to do that rather than start a new bank right. that's built on better infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And as the tech and venture ecosystem, we continue to focus on a lot of the venture industry focuses on this segment, which is tech companies who sell to other tech companies. But actually, there's a lot of value that can be created, which is the majority of the economy that is a traditional industry. Yeah. And banks fit into that category as well. And as General Catalyst, you know, we have, th that's kind of our, our premise that we really want to focus on these traditional industries. Mm -hmm. But this, the traditional venture investing style might not work for that. It might require more capital. If you do a seed investment or a very small check into a company that sells to banks, and you know how long it takes to sell to mm -hmm. a bank, and you know, you know, it's going to take them at least a year to get their first customer, and then they need to go and raise their next round, it's going to take you longer to get the signs or product market fit. So therefore, we're thinking about more creative ways of financing hmm. when it comes to dealing with the traditional industry. For this, for example, we have a creation fund. With the creation fund, we invest in these big ideas, and often these big ideas focus on big markets that are untouched. Banks would be one category, or transforming the hotel industry or the travel industry, integrated manufacturing, industrial mm -hmm. automation. And when we invest from our creation fund, we usually typically do, do a bigger check. And it's not really, I wouldn't call it the company building model. We effectively do the seed investment, but we guarantee the A. All so right. we don't, it's not a trying to get ownership and dilute that model. It's just saying that we know that it's going to take longer for you to get to product market fit. This is a very tough industry. Mm -hmm. You're an excellent team. If you crack it, it's a huge opportunity. So we give you that guarantee and the backing. Okay, um, well, th that's an interesting approach to that. Yeah. So at General Catalyst, we always think about different ways to value creation. Mm -hmm. We really don't think about ourselves as a, as a venture firm. Venture is you know, the core of what we do, the people is the core of what we do really. And we, that's where we start at as early as we can build conviction. And that can be sometimes pre-idea. But then we think about other ways of adding value. That's why we also have our customer value strategy, which is a mm -hmm. way to kind of scale your marketing spend without getting diluted through equity. That's why we have the creation strategy. Uh, that's why we have endurance, which is our growth fund that invests in companies that we believe will be in the next generation you know, iconic businesses. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Int interesting. So, to wrap it up, what I wanted to ask, uh, so let's just try and put a tag back into fintech. So, what do you think is the next in fintech? Like, what in terms of technologies, what do you think is the most promising? What do you, what do you see happening from where you sit? So, for me, I definitely am spending a big part of my brain on what I kind of described to you. So, mm -hmm. not necessarily payments, but what happens behind the payments, mm -hmm. you know? Now we have a rise of alternative payment methods. There are a lot of ways to accept money. Effectively, getting paid or paying is no longer the issue. But what happens in the back end when that payment comes through? You know, how is it tagged? How is it reconciled? When does it go to the bank? How do you automate all that processes? That's what I'm really focused on. Mm -hmm. And I am confident that that will happen in the next, you know, two, three years. What really excites me, but I think it's still a little bit in, we're in the dark, is more uh, stable coins. Mm -hmm. So, and that it, unfortunately is because it relies on banks. 
how can we change cross-border payments, which is really the only category of payments that is today integrated with SWIFT, which is also a programming language. So how can we use stablecoins to effectively replace SWIFT as a new messaging system to do cross-border payments in a more transparent and efficient way? Interesting. Okay, Zeynep, thank you so much. Thanks a lot again for taking the time and uh, good luck with everything you're doing at GC. Thank you very much. Once again, big thanks to Zeynep for finding the time to come on the show. And this is all we have time for in this episode of the TNW podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you like our show, please help us spread the word. Tell a friend or colleague about the show and follow our updates on social media. Just search for the next web and you will find us pretty much everywhere. Music and sound engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions and opinions. We're always at podcast at thenextword.com. I am Andrei Degeler. I'm Ioanna Likardopoulou. Have a great week. Talk to you next Wednesday. Bye-bye.